Well, the Apostle Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 8, he said, and this is kind of a qualifying statement, he said, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, he says, here's one of the the identifying characteristics of someone who belongs to God. Because I hope we all understand here, not every human is a child of God. Every human is a creation of God, but not every human, every person is a child of God. The person who is a child of God are those who, as it says, Paul says, are, are those who are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? How does that connect to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 12 through 14? This is what we want to know. We want to understand. And it's important that we recognize that what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians is about things that the Corinthian church had asked him specifically about. If you write down and look up later 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see where Paul says, Now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. So Paul is answering their questions. The Corinthian church had questions about many things. They had a lot of controversy within the church. There was a lot of carnality within the church. And they had questions. And Paul's addressing their specific questions. He's answering their questions about who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. And I love the fact that he starts off saying, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. And it's interesting because there's three things that the Apostle Paul said in his letters that he didn't want his readers to be ignorant of. One was the work of the Spirit. Uh, one was the God's plan for the nation of Israel. And what's the third one? I just dropped off the top of my head. Anybody know? Work of the Spirit, nation of Israel. Now I'm going to shoot myself for not writing it down. What? No. The second coming of Christ. Amen. Thank you. The second coming of Christ. What's interesting about that is, aren't those the three things that we're most ignorant about? That we most debate over? The work of the Spirit? The second coming of Christ? And the nation of Israel? And yet Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I won't want you to be, as one version says, uninformed about these things. Now, starting off, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, you might notice that the word gifts is italicized, which means, you know, it's kind of the the, the writing's off to the side. The reason is because the word gifts isn't in the original. It's one word in the Greek. It's the word pneumatikos. It literally means the work of the Spirit. It means something that's spiritual. It refers not just to the thing that's being done, but the one who's doing it. So when we talk about the work of the Spirit, we talk about spiritual gifts, we're not just talking about something that God sort of says, well, here you go, and then you have it, and you kind of just use it as you will. We're talking about that which the Spirit does through a person, in a person and through a person. Pneumaticos, the work of the Spirit. And so Paul's saying, really, he wants to make sure that the Corinthian church, and, and of course the Holy Spirit wants to make sure we are not ignorant of how he works, that we have an understanding of what he wants us to do. Now, thinking about this verse in the book of Romans, about as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. To be led means what? Someone goes ahead and you follow. What did Jesus say to his disciples when he engaged them in discipleship? What phrase did he use? What did he call them, invite them to? He says, come and what? Follow me. So when we're talking about being led by the Spirit, we are talking about, in a very real sense, what it means to follow Jesus. And so to understand being led by the Spirit has to have its foundation in understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And so this is what, what Paul's really going to unpack. Now, right off the bat, we, want, we need to understand that following develops with understanding. When Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant, he's not saying that these guys don't have any experience with the spiritual gifts. Check this out in the very beginning of the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or chapter 1, verse uh, 4 and 7. Paul starts off his, his epistle to them saying, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Part of that grace was shown how? So that you come short in no gift. Now, as carnal as the Corinthians uh, were, even as uh, some of the ways they were using the gifts of the Spirit were wrong, Paul still commends them for their experience. 
He commends them the fact that they won't fall short. This, this was an open church. This was not a closed church. This was a, a live church. This was not a dead church. This was a church that was open to what God's Spirit did. It was, it was walking in the manifestations of the Spirit. It was open to those things. Now, this is important to recognize because it's important to recognize that you can have authentic experience without accurate understanding. I'll say that again. You can have authentic experience without accurate understanding. Now, the problem is, if the purpose of the work of the Spirit is to teach us how to follow Jesus, if we don't have an understanding, an accurate understanding of what that means, what that looks like, even if our experience starts off as authentic, it can easily turn into something that's inauthentic or off. And so it's important to recognize this. There's a distinction between what we experience and what we understand. In fact, the way we know that what we're experiencing is authentic is by growing in our understanding. Now, when it comes to experiences, we don't want, I don't want you guys, as we're talking about this series, to get the impression that what I'm saying is, don't trust your experiences, or experiences are bad. There's a reality, guys, that, 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 that to have a relationship with God is to experience Him. There should be even an expectation of experiences. Peter talks about that when we go through trials, yet we continue to trust Jesus, that we experience a joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's an experience. It's not a doctrine. When Paul, Paul talks about that when we are struggling with issues, when we're, we're tempted to worry and to have anxiety, that we are commanded to not be anxious, but instead pray giving thanks to God, asking Him to intervene, and the peace that surpasses understanding, literally a peace that's better than understanding, will guard your heart and mind. That's an experience, not just a doctrine. So there's a, the, the, the Christian life is meant to be one of experience, not just meant to be one of the intellect. God calls us to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. Every aspect of who we are, is connected to what God wants to do. So I don't want you to think that I'm saying experience bad. No. What I'm saying is this, experience doesn't equal understanding. So what we need to be as believers, especially when we're talking about wanting to grow in our understanding is, we need to expect to experience things and we need to test those things. What's the scripture say? And this is in the context of the work of the Spirit. We'll look at the context in a couple weeks. But Paul says, test all things, and what? Hold fast that which is good. Now here's what I've, I, I've noticed in, in having conversations with a, a lot of different people from a lot of different churches. It seems that often what you have is you have congregations who really want to just hold fast that which is good. And so they're pretty much open to any experiences out there that someone has attached the name of Jesus to. So they're just open, man. We just want to see whatever God wants to do. And, and if, if, if Aunt Bessie said it was of Jesus, it must be of Jesus. If Pastor so-and-so said it was Jesus, it must be of Jesus. And so basically just want to be open to anything because they want to hold fast to every good thing that God has. And they don't want to test. But the Bible says test all things. You also have other people who want to test all things. Really what they want to do is disprove all things. So that they're not holding fast to anything that they can't intellectually explain. And that also is a mistake. No, what I think Paul is, is, is wanting us to understand from the get-go, I think we need to understand from the get-go, is that, um, is that we need to test all things and hold fast that which is good. We need both those things happening. Now, this is why, or one of the reasons why, last week we did a teaching on the authority of Scripture. Because how do you test if something is actually of God or not? You go back to the Word of God. You test. Is this something that Jesus was involved in? Is this something that Jesus taught, the apostles taught, was practicing in the church? We test these things. And the things that don't fit that criteria, they don't line up with the Word of God, we throw them out. And we own up. Hey, that was wrong. We shouldn't have gone down that road. All right. The things that are of God, that are doing uh, what God says they are meant to do, which we'll talk about in future weeks, we hold fast to those things. But our following, listen, being led by the Spirit, which is 
basically God the Spirit teaching us to follow God the Son, learning to follow Jesus, that grows with understanding. We have to know what he, where He's taking us if we're going to walk. Now it's interesting because we see that He brings up this issue of, of what they were before they were believers in idol worship. Look what He says in verse 2. Paul says, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols. However, notice, you were what? Led. Now, one of the things we need to think about is that we need to make sure that we understand, as human beings, we are not autonomous. And what I mean by that is that you might be your own person. Yes, you make your own choices. But there is not a single human being who is not under the influence of something or someone. All of us are influenced by our cultures, our upbringings, the things that we put ourselves under. And we're also influenced by spiritual beings. So that when Paul says you were led, remember, when Paul's talking about idolatry in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about, one, both these actual uh, statues and idols that the, that the Gentiles would have bowed down to in worship, and also the demons behind them. He makes that pretty clear in Corinthians. He, when we talk about 1 Corinthians 8, he makes it clear that idolatry, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols is, yeah, okay, we, we can know the idol's nothing, so the meat's good and it's cheap, you might as well eat it. There's nothing wrong with that because it's not like a demon attaches to the meat. So like if you're having that steak, it's, there's a demon in you now. That's ridiculous. He says, that's silly. At the same time, he says in chapter 10, I think it is, he talks about, look, you don't want to worship demons by eating that meat sacrificed to idols at the temple. At the, at, the te- at the idol temple. So he recognized that there's a demon behind that idolatrous thing. Now, here's why this is important. Because in understanding that our following develops with our understanding, we need to understand, guys, that idol worship, worshiping false gods, can produce an experience. So just because you're having an experience doesn't mean you're, you're worshiping the true living God. Even when that experience, listen, again, has the name of Jesus attached to it. Idol worship can produce experience. What idol worship cannot produce, listen, is revelation. An understanding of God, of, of who God really is. This is why Paul brings up the issue or, or, or calls these guys dumb idols. He doesn't mean like, oh, those stupid idols. He means dumb as in unable to speak, unable to communicate the truth of God. And so there's a reality that, that, that we, we need to, to recognize that, yeah, idols can produce experience, but they cannot produce real revelation. And this is important because when we're talking about being open to the things of the Spirit, wanting to test all things and hold fast that which is good, we need to recognize, listen, that just because we're having an experience doesn't mean it's of God. In fact, listen, I don't know if you realize this, but supernatural experiences can be counterfeited. Check this out. Exodus chapter 7. You guys know the story. Moses goes to, to Pharaoh, right? God had told Moses what, he, what, what he's going to do through him to deliver his people. What do we read? So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they... Uh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, and it became a serpent. Before, and before servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men out of the sorcerers, so that the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For there every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now the point is, is that these guys, the magicians, were able to counterfeit. In whatever way it was, we can speculate how they did it. But they were able to counterfeit the miracle. Do you understand? Now this is also what we say is going to characterize this person identified in Scripture as the Antichrist. This is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, the coming of the lawless one, that's a reference to the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with what? All power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, just so you don't think I'm being extra paranoid about this stuff, this is the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He says this, again, in reference to the end of days, in reference to these false or counterfeit Christ and counterfeit prophets. He says in Mark 13, 22, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
Please understand, I'm not saying these things to make you paranoid. I'm saying these things to free you. Boundaries give us freedom. When we understand how we are to filter and judge experiences, we are free to be open to the experiences. There's a reality, though, that these things can be counterfeited. And because these things can be counterfeited, it's very, very important for us to know how we are to test these things. How that we need to test these things against the Word of God. Is this really of God? Is this really what we, again, what we see Jesus practicing and emphasizing, what we see the apostles practicing and emphasizing, what we see being taught in the epistles and practiced in the book of Acts? Is this really what we see? If it's not all three of those things, it's probably not something we should be involved in. If we want to be those who are followers of Jesus, we need to be developing a biblical understanding of what he's leading us into. And if we don't know what he's leading us into, in one side we, we could say, well, I don't want to be involved in anything that might be at all wacky, so I'm not going to be open to any of these things that he actually says he wants to lead us into, or I'll just want to be open to everything, and so I'm going to just be open to anything, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where you're not even following Jesus anymore. So it's a really important thing that we understand this, okay? I think this is why Paul's beginning this way. He then says this in verse 3, okay? He says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, if following develops with understanding, we need to recognize here that following also means recognizing the authority of Jesus. That's what he, he kind of gets to. He says, look, it's only by the Holy Spirit that someone says Jesus is Lord. Now, I've got to be clear about something. He, he mentions speaking here in, in two sides of the coin. One is speaking, saying things, you know, I think Jesus is accursed or he's, you know, I, I think Jesus, you know, basically was uh, forsaken by God or accursed of God or what happened to him wasn't of God. It, it can, it, that all can fit, okay? Anyone who says that, anyone who actually believes that about Jesus uh, doesn't have the Spirit of God in them. At the same time, anyone who believes that Jesus is indeed the Lord and Savior, that only happens because God's revealed this to him. Now, it's, it's hard for us to see this because we're thinking it's got to be something more than just saying that or thinking that because we live in a, in a culture where we lie all the time. We say what we don't mean because we want to impress people that we don't like. We do it all the time. We, 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 we are quick to make professions about things. Because well, what's really important to us is our comfort. We don't want to be uncomfortable, so we don't want to say something that someone's not going to agree with. We all do this. But you have to understand, in this day, if a Jewish person was, would, would not say Jesus was accursed, that he would be considered one who was denying his allegiance to the people of God, to the nation of Israel. So if he didn't say Jesus was cursed, he was actually denying allegiance. For a Gentile to say Jesus is Lord was to basically say Caesar isn't. In both cases, to make this profession was to basically put yourself at the threat of death. It was a serious thing to profess, you know what, Jesus wasn't cursed. He became the curse for us on the tree, but he's God's only begotten son, uh, laid his own life down, took it, back from, uh, took it back himself through resurrection, as he said in John chapter 10. He is the risen, only begotten son of God. He's the only savior, and I believe that. To say that as a Jewish person was to say, and our people killed him, and to be an, uh, considered to be a cursed yourself. To say that as a Gentile person is to say, Caesar, sorry, you ain't the king, Jesus is and to put yourself in the place of being killed, it was a very serious thing to make this kind of proclamation. We need to learn. We need to be sort of delivered from our cultural problem of being quick to say things that we actually don't believe. We say things we don't believe, and then we say something different to somebody else that we also don't believe. In, in, a, in a scripture, from a scripture perspective, the reality is, is that... Um, the mouth speaks what the heart believes. Ultimately, that's what's going to come out as well. This is what happens. When your life is really squeezed, what comes out of your heart 
What comes out of your mouth is what's really in your heart. When things are really difficult and things are really tough for you, what becomes out of what you start talking about, what you start professing, what you start saying, actually shows where you are. So that when you can say, man, I'm, I'm so happy to be a Christian, I really love God, He's wonderful, and then things go pear-shaped, relationship goes bad, actually, you know, where's God? He doesn't care. I don't really think God loves me because my life's horrible. That shows what's actually in your heart. Now, Jesus talked about this, didn't he? Jesus says in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul said a similar thing in Romans chapter 10, talking about wanting to bring the gospel to the nation of Israel. He said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now it's important for us to recognize, listen, that Paul is wanting us to to see... that the only reason we are able to confess this is because God's done a work in our hearts. If we're honest about what comes out of our mouths, it exposes something about our hearts that's pretty vile. We are quick to trust ourselves. We're slow to trust Jesus. We are quick to judge others harshly and quick to let ourselves off easily. There's something about our hearts that's corrupt. When we get into Genesis, we'll see how that happened. But there's a reality here, listen, that Paul wants these Corinthian church people to understand. Listen, do you understand, even your coming to faith presupposes a work of God's Spirit. Even you getting to the place where you said, yes, Jesus has to be Lord, presupposes a work of God's Spirit. Now, this is really important. It's important because it sets the precedent to how we relate to the Spirit of God, how we respond to the Spirit of God. So, we're going to go ahead and leave Corinthians for the day, and what we're going to do is we're going to turn to John chapter 14. So turn with me to John chapter 14. So you're in 1 Corinthians, you go backwards, Romans backwards again, Acts backwards again to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. That's a glorious sound. Pages turning. I love to hear that sound at church. John chapter 14. Now, just to remind you of the context of John 14, this is the night before he's crucified. Jesus is preparing his disciples that he's going to leave. They're really bothered by this because they don't want him to go. He has said to them, On the way, truth, and life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, Uh, Philip had said, Lord, just show us the Father, it's enough. He says, look, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He exhorts them to ask things in His name that He would do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Then He says this in verse 15 of chapter 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is significant. He's about to talk about the work of the Spirit. He's about to reveal to his disciples the work of his Spirit, whom he's going to send. And he says, listen, if you guys really want me around, if you really love me, remember, this is going to be about obedience. Keep my commandments. This is going to be about my authority in your life. And he says, listen, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells, notice, with you and will be, notice, in you. Those prepositions are important. Let me just be really clear about this. In case you don't know, He's obviously talking about the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 16, He says, another helper. And He uses a specific word for another. There's actually two words in the Greek language for another. One means another of a different kind, heteros. The other means another of the same kind. That's what this word is. Another of the same kind. So when Jesus says another helper, he means another of the same kind. The same kind of as who? As himself. 
So Jesus is saying, listen, you're, you're sad that I'm going to go away, but listen, it's, it, you need to know I'm going to send, the Father's going to send another helper, one like me. And he says who he is, the Spirit of Truth. And he says, and you're going to know him because he dwells with you. Now we're going to come back to the in you in a second, but I want you to turn to John chapter 16. Now what I want to do with you guys now is I want to explain to you I want to point out to you three important preposition, uh, prepositional phrases. Uh, th- this word with, this word in, and then in a little while we're going to look at the word upon. Because these prepositional phrases sort of communicate how we relate to the Holy Spirit. What that relationship is, how that relationship works. And Paul here starts, or I'm sorry, Jesus here starts by saying, listen, the Holy Spirit, you're, you're going to recognize Him because He's with you. He's going to do this work with you. And He means this because obviously... Where was the Holy Spirit? He was in Jesus, wasn't he? Is it when Jesus starts his ministry, what do you see? The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, right? Now, in talking about these things, and we're going to talk about this again a little bit uh, next week, it's important, this is where it gets, I think, hard for us to understand, because we're trying to get our heads around the Trinity and understand, well, which person in the Trinity does what? And this is where we can sometimes get confusing about the work of the Spirit. And I have to be honest, I find it helpful... To understand that Trinity is uh, the Trinity is a biblical doctrine, it's a reality, but to just recognize, and we're talking about the work of Jesus, we're talking about the work of God, we're talking about the work of the Spirit, we're talking about the work of God. That there is one God. We don't want to over-separate the Trinity. We don't want to deny the Trinity, because it's biblical. We don't want to say that there's one God who just expresses himself in three different ways. That wouldn't be biblical. But we also don't want to over-separate the Trinity. We're kind of going, okay, was that Jesus or was that the Spirit? How does that work? So we're talking about this is what God does. Jesus is saying, listen, as I work with you, I'm going to sit, uh, the Father's going to send another one like me who's going to help you. And when he's with you, you'll recognize him because you're going to recognize the work that he does. Now, in John 16, Jesus is talking about, listen, he's talking about uh, what the Holy Spirit's going to do in relation to the world. In other words, you might say in relation to people before they come to faith, to unbelievers. Look what he says in chapter 16, verse 8. He says, and when he, that's the Holy Spirit. Notice he, not it. Holy Spirit is a person. When he has come, he will convict, or you could say convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgments. And then he tells us what that means. Of sin... Because they do not believe in me. In other words, listen, the Holy Spirit's going to work and convince people in their heart of hearts they should be trusting Jesus. They need to be trusting Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who does that work. He says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now, Jesus is talking about the reality of his ascension. When Jesus ascended into heaven, was accepted into heaven after his resurrection, it was the final proof positive that what he had done on the cross and through the resurrection was sufficient to give us, to make us right with God, to give us righteousness. Okay? So what the Holy Spirit's going to do when it says convict of righteousness is to say, Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. This is why we're only right with God through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit will convict us of that. This is a, it's a pretty simple thing to understand, but it takes the Holy Spirit to enlighten the eyes of our understanding to receive it. And that is this. None of us are good enough to approach God. None of us are. All of us sin. All of us, in our heart of hearts, want to do our own thing and not what God wants us to do. And so God the Spirit begins to show us that we need to trust in Jesus, our trust should be in Jesus. And also, listen, He begins to show us, listen, because Jesus is the only righteous one. And we can't be right with God apart from His righteousness. Which is why, listen, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Which is why Paul says in Romans 10, before he says, confess it with your mouth and believe in your heart, he says, don't be like the nation of Israel who wanted to establish their own righteousness instead of receiving the righteousness of God, which is a free gift in Christ. So the Holy Spirit's going to say, look, not only does Jesus should be trusted, but also Jesus is the standard, and also, verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. In other words, Jesus rules over all, even evil spirits, even Satan himself. 
If you guys are, are uh, participating in the Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church, and you've read Job, isn't Job a great picture of that? The devil does all kinds of horrible things to Job, but he can only do what God allows him to do. God rules. Jesus rules. So here's the reality. It's important for us to understand before we start talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit manifests Himself within us as a congregation or within us as individuals, it's important to recognize the only reason any of us even come to Jesus in the first place is because the Spirit of God draws us. Because the Spirit of God opens our eyes. We sang today, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. What were we we singing? What we were praying? We were praying, God, would you work in us by your Spirit? Because if you don't, we remain blind. You have to do that work of revelation. You have to show us who Jesus is. You have to show us that we need Jesus. And this is our first experience with the Holy Spirit. This is also one of the ways we know that is the work of the Spirit. Because as Jesus will say later on in John 16, in fact it's in 16.13, I'm sorry, 16.14, he says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. See, the first and primary work of God's Spirit is to show us that we need Jesus and we can trust Jesus. See, following comes with understanding. So we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about what God's doing in us supernaturally to teach us what it means to follow Jesus. And you have to have that. Please don't misunderstand me. You cannot follow Jesus apart from the work of God's Spirit. Do you understand that? I cannot follow Jesus apart from the work of God's Spirit. So when we are trying to follow Jesus apart from the work of the Spirit, you know what we do? We fail miserably. Or we deceive ourselves and think that we're actually accomplishing something and we become a Pharisee. So Jesus said, going back to chapter 14 of John, Jesus said to his disciples, listen, you know him for he dwells with you. You're going to recognize his work. We've just now quantified that work according to Jesus' own words, okay? For he dwells with you and what? Will be in you. He will be in you. Now, one of the things that the scripture teaches is that every believer in Jesus, everyone who's been born again, has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And this is so important to recognize. In fact, Paul says it this way, listen... Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now, Spirit Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, same Spirit. He's not, oh, there's a Spirit of God and there's also the Spirit of Christ. There's one Spirit who can be identified as the Spirit of God and identified as the Spirit of Christ. Okay? And Paul's being very clear here, you're not really a Christian unless God's Spirit dwells in you. Do you understand me? I say this for clarity because what happens is, uh, there was a woman who used to go to our church for several years and she said, oh, I've been a Christian since I was five, but I wasn't really a born-again Christian until I was 15. And so I said, okay, um, can you explain more what you mean by that? And she really thought that she was a Christian, like I'm going to go to heaven. But then I got born again, and so now it's even better. And I had to explain to you, listen, that's not the way it works. (laughs) You have to be born again to be a Christian. You don't just kind of like, yeah, I I like some of the stuff about Christianity. I like some of the morals and stuff, and therefore I'm a Christian. And then that born again stuff, maybe I need it, maybe I don't, I don't know. That's not the way it works. In fact, check this out. This is, again, Jesus' own words. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, famous phrase, but it's important to remember the context. Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night because he says, listen, he recognizes, he recognizes that Jesus is from God. He says, no one can do what you do unless you're from God. He's very much suspicious that Jesus might be the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't answer any questions. He just cuts the trace and says, you must be born again. 
Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 5 and 6, he, John 3, verses 5 and 6, Most certainly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Let me just be clear too. When Jesus is born of water, I personally believe this is a reference to the water of the Word, washing of the water of the Word, not baptism. Like what uh, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, that, that Christ loves his bride and has washed her in the water of the Word. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we've been born again according to the Word of God. So it's the Word and the Spirit. In other words, when God's gospel goes out, when the gospel goes out, the Spirit uses that to enlighten people's understanding. So they don't just know something in their head, but He does a change in their heart. He actually changes them. They are born from above. They are given spiritual birth. And unless the Spirit does that, we remain in the flesh. We remain dead to God. Now, why is this important? <laughs> well, it's really important because you can't be saved unless this happens to you. And, and, and I've I got to be really clear about this. You, you need to understand this, okay? This is not just about you joining a church or becoming part of a group. You need God to do something in your heart. You need Him to regenerate you. You say, well, don't I have a choice in the matter? You do. You have a choice to respond to what the Spirit's doing or reject it. You don't choose to be born again. But when the Holy Spirit begins to show you, you should trust in Jesus. He is the only righteous one. He is the judge of all the earth. And you go, nah, I'll just hang out at church. Not born again. And you're still lost. When God begins to show you your need for Jesus, let me exhort you, don't play games. Respond to Him. And receive that work of the Spirit to give you new life. To find forgiveness of sins. But also it's important because it sets this precedent that it's the Holy Spirit who initiates the work in our lives. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible's really clear. It's God who initiates the relationship. It's the Spirit of God who initiates us being right with Him. It's not our idea. I've always been kind of philosophical by nature. My dad was that way. My oldest son's that way. It's just part of how we are. Just kind of philosophical. Always thinking about deep things and how things work. That's the way I've been. And so I always kind of thought about God. My mom says I was kind of born spiritual and I've always kind of thought about God. And even though I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I was always the one asking these kinds of philosophical questions. But when God got a hold of my life, please understand, I wasn't seeking God. I wanted answers from time to time, but I wasn't seeking to know God. I assumed I knew who God was. Big guy in the sky, kind of made everything. I'm sure he likes me because I'm cool. And that's how I thought about God. I wanted answers. I just didn't want Him to be the one I looked to to get the answers. But God chased me down. He chased me down. God got my attention. And in my case, nobody was even witnessing to me. I just began to feel convicted, convinced that the things that all my friends and even my family said were good for me to do, that these things weren't good. This wasn't good. Okay, maybe it's not messing me up, but it's messing other people up. This can't be right. And then I hated that. I hated feeling guilty about stuff that I was sure should be okay to do, but I feel bad about doing it. And it wasn't until I heard someone explain to me about who Jesus is, that Jesus is Lord and that he's a one who's worthy to be followed and trusted because he himself died to pay for the things that I have done wrong so that my guilt could be washed away. Then I realized, oh my goodness, this has been God trying to get my attention. You see, you might be here today and you might be thinking to yourself, I'm here because I'm a nice person and I'm open-minded and I want to know about stuff. Well, let me tell you something. You're probably a nicer person than me, but you ain't that great. You are here today because God wants to get your attention. Because God so loved you 
That He said, I want you to be here hearing what I have to say so that my Spirit can work in your heart and get your attention and call you to trust Him. God does this. He initiates the work. And unless we get this through our heads, you know what's going to happen? We're going to think it's us. We're doing it. We're the good ones. We're the responsive ones. Let's not deceive ourselves. It's God who initiates the work. Let's let Him do what He wants to do. Listen, if you're here and you're thinking about these things and you're wrestling through these things and you've got questions, I encourage you to ask the questions. Because the Bible says that God's Spirit will not always strive with man. Ask the questions. God wants to do for you far greater than you can even imagine for yourself. Not easier, greater. Now, Jesus says, look, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you and then He will be in you. Because what happens? God's Spirit comes in us when we're born again. Okay? This is why Paul says... It's, it's blasphemous for us to, to continue practicing sin. Specifically, in Corinth, he's talking about the issue of, uh, of sexual sin when he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Why aren't you your own? Because you were bought at a price. It's Christ who paid the price so that you could be full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could take up residence in you. This is also why, listen... There is, this is part of the, the, the difficult experience as a believer. What happens when you, when you get saved, when God saves you and God's Spirit dwells in you, and you know that your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus, when God's Spirit takes residence in you, you find that you can't do the same things you used to do before you are a Christian. I was promiscuous before I was a Christian. had a girlfriend at the time uh, that I became a Christian, actually a nominal Christian girlfriend. We had been involved uh, sexually before I got saved. Uh, a couple days after I got saved, we in, got involved sexually again. Now, I had a radical conversion experience. I mean, a radical conversion experience. And I think, I'd, I obviously, I knew it was wrong to do that, but you're in the, in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Things happen. And so this happens. And I had felt guilty, like I said, uh, before this. But, man, I'll tell you what. When that happened with this girl, I was thrashed. It was like, I, I can't even... I can't even express the amount of shame that I felt at that time. I was thrashed. And it, it was interesting because the, the, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, you see, you see why I've been so upset about this in our relationship? And by the grace of God, we, we got some accountability and we were able to walk away from that sin. But I share that, guys, because this is what the things, one of the things the Holy Spirit does. This is one of the ways that you can know that God's actually dwelling in you. Is there a conviction of sin? If you can profess that Jesus is Lord, if you can say those words and still do whatever you want and not have any con- uh, conviction about it, you're not born again. You're not. And I say this is so important because one of the things that we see happening in the church today is people so emphasize the experience of what the Holy Spirit does that if they have that experience, well, that's what, how I know. I have that experience with God. I've, 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 I've seen God heal or, or I've spoken in tongues or I've prophesied. And so I know that, that God has saved me. But, you know, I don't think it's that big of a deal if I get drunk or if I sleep with my girlfriend or if I cheat on my taxes, wherever the case might be. And there's no conviction of sin. I think, is that really the Lord? Now, if you look at, uh, back at John 16 for a second, and you look at chapter 5, or verse 5, Jesus had said, I mentioned this earlier, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, it's important for us to recognize that there is a distinction between the way the Holy Spirit worked with believers in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, 
and the way the Holy Spirit works with believers in the New Covenant. The Bible indicates, if you read the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit only came upon or dwelt in prophets, priests, and kings. That's it. You, you will not find sort of everyday, normal, faithful Israelite uh, who's not a prophet or a priest or a king who is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that those people didn't have God's Spirit dealing with them and revealing truth to them. Obviously, God's Spirit was doing that as well. But nobody in the Old Testament, except for a prophet, priest, or king, had the Spirit indwelling them. And even those people who did, the Spirit left them. We see that happening with Saul, right? Uh, we see that happening with Samson, Spirit of God leaving them. Whereas Jesus talks about when he sends the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit will abide with you, how long? Forever. So there's a difference in relationship to even the Holy Spirit. So every believer who's been born again of the Spirit has the Holy Spirit in him who dwells in him permanently and makes sure he goes from glory to glory. Make sure he goes from the point of understanding for the first time that Jesus is, is Lord and he should follow him brings him all the way to heaven to receive Jesus face to face and, and the work that God started is completed. Yes, I believe that once a person is born again, they cannot become unborn again. Once God's Spirit dwells in a person and they're in that covenant relationship, they're not going to become unborn again. God's going to make sure they make it. It won't be a straight road, won't be an easy path, but He will get them there. Now, Jesus didn't just say, hey, this will be good enough until you see me in heaven. He said to the disciples who had walked with him for three and a half years, uh, have you ever wanted to just to, to walk with Jesus? I mean, like physically, have you ever had that desire? How cool it would have been to actually be John, lay your head on his chest and say, Lord, could you explain that to me again? Or to hear him teach on the Sermon on the Mount or something? I mean, have you ever wanted that, how amazing it is? Jesus tells his disciples, actually, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because the relationship you're going to have with me is going to be more intimate through the Holy Spirit than it was when you just walk with me in human form, in the flesh. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 7. We're almost done. John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, we see uh, Jesus doing something pretty radical. He stands up at the end of this feast day and he cries something out. Verse 37. It says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit, notice, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. So in other words, that until Christ is glorified, he would not send his Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus is crying out. In other words, he's making this known to anyone who will listen. He's saying, listen, if you're thirsty, come to me. And this is my question for us as a church and for you as an individual. Are you thirsty? Because if you're thirsty, let me encourage you, that itself is a work of the Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you're thirsty for more of God, that is a work of God's Spirit. But he didn't just say, listen, stay thirsty. He said, if you're thirsty, what? Come to me. Not come down to the altar. Not go to the televangelist. Not get the prayer cloth in the mail. Come to me, he said. Come to me. That's what he said. And he says, what will happen? As the scripture says, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And of course, he's there, he says really clearly, speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
Notice he didn't say into his heart. He said out of his heart. If something flows out, what does that mean? It's already in. This brings us to the third sort of preposition, the third way that we relate to the Spirit. And to explain this, we see it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Turn there quickly, we're almost done. Acts chapter 1. Jesus had said in John chapter 20, he had gone to his disciples and he had said, Peace to you as the Father sent me, I send you. And it says that he, as he said this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now I personally believe that those in that room were born again at that point. You don't have to agree with me. A lot of good guys think, no, nobody was born again until Pentecost. I don't want to split hairs. But here's a reality, okay? Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. It says, And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, in other words, don't go out on the, on, on the missionary journey. He says, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You should be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, as always he says in verse 8, look at it. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has what? Come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus talks about not just the reality that, that the Holy Spirit is with you, convicting you, showing you, convincing you that you need Jesus and come in relationship with Jesus to the point that he brings you to the place where you come to faith and you're regenerated or born into his family. He does that. He comes along with you. But when he does give you new life, regeneration, he also comes to dwell in you, never to leave again, to finish the work that he started in you. But there's this third experience, this third reality, this third, you might say, way that we relate to God that causes all kinds of controversy. And it's sad because Jesus says this third experience is necessary. It's the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may or may not know that Servants Church is part of a group of churches called Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel comes out of the what you might call the Pentecostal stream of churches. Okay, Pastor Chuck Smith grew up in what's called the Foursquare denomination, a very uh, Pentecostal denomination in the United States. I think there's some Foursquare churches here as well. Um, and he grew up in that church. Uh, that theology influenced him at least the reality of the present work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it influences theology. God called him out of that place because he saw some of the, uh, the excesses uh, in that movement. So God called him out of that, but there's a reality that one of the things that stuck with him and therefore has influenced the movement and therefore has influenced me is this reality of the coming upon work of the Holy Spirit. The confusion sometimes comes in with the word baptism. Because as we'll see next week in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul basically treats like every, every believer has been baptized. And I think that's true. Every believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. To be born again and to be baptized are connected that way. Which is why a lot of people think Pentecost is when everyone was first born again. But there is this reality of the Holy Spirit coming upon you that we see throughout the book of Acts. We see spoken about that is, is something that we should be pursuing. The coming upon. Now, here's the difference between what I would call a traditional Pentecostal theology and what we believe here at Servants Church. And this is where we start getting into some of the, some of the dynamics, some of the particulars. Traditional Pentecostal theology tends to emphasize the events of the coming upon. Sort of like the same way that we do in modern evangelical circles where we emphasize the events of coming to Christ. When did you raise your hand? When did you say the sinner's prayer? Do you know what I'm saying by that? And we can sometimes emphasize that event. That becomes the big thing. And if you grew up in the church, you know that that can sometimes be a bit disconcerting because maybe you can't remember the event. You know you're saved. You know God saved you, but you don't know what day it happened, right? So sometimes the, the overemphasis on the day, on the events... Uh, can, can, be this, can be unhelpful. Now, there's theolog theological reasons for emphasizing the, both the event of the coming upon of the Spirit and the event of the day of your conversion. Mainly because there is a day when you weren't converted and then you get saved and you are converted. There is a day when at one moment you weren't born again, the next moment you are born again. That's a reality, a biblical reality. So there is a moment in time, even if you can't identify it, when that happens. 
At the same time, there's a moment in time when the Holy Spirit for the first time comes upon you. That's a reality as well. There is a moment of time when that happens. Often I think it happens at conversion, but not always. But here's the problem. With traditional Pentecostal theology, when we say we emphasize the event, what ends up happening is people tend to then, therefore, think about when it happened to them and are wanting to encourage people for that same kind of experience to happen to them. Oh, here's how it happened, what happened to me. I had this experience. Now, I'm not going to share today about some of my experiences. I will share some of those experiences as we continue throughout uh, chapters 12 through 14, but I'm not going to share any today. But, but my point is this. What, what we don't do is, is try to emphasize the event. Hey, what happened the day you got saved? Can you identify the day you got saved? What happened the day you first experienced the coming upon of the Spirit? Can you identify what happened that day? We don't want to emphasize that for two reasons. One, it, it, it breeds a sort of competition between believers. Was your experience as dynamic as my experience? Seriously, let's be honest. That's what happens, okay? Also, what can happen is it breeds doubt in unbelievers. Someone whom God has actually saved, they think, well, maybe I didn't get saved because I didn't have this radical conversion experience like John had. Or someone thinks, maybe I haven't been baptized in the Spirit because I've had some experiences, but I'm not sure if those would qualify as being the baptism of the Spirit. And they, they can overemphasize an event that keeps us, instead of pursuing God for what He wants to do in and through us so we can be His witnesses, which is what Jesus said He wants to do, we begin to emphasize, what kind of experience can I have to prove to me that I'm actually saved? When the proof that we're saved is what? The work that Jesus has done for us. His death and resurrection and our faith in that. Do you see what I'm saying? Now here's what we, we do. I, I, I refer to what, where we're coming from as what I would maybe call a biblical charismatic position. Which is, we want to emphasize what the scripture emphasizes. We want to emphasize the pursuit of and the walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The pursuit of and the walking in the power of the Spirit. In other words, we don't want to just go, okay, I'm a Christian, okay, I'm, I know the Bible, I'm learning uh, facts about the Bible, and because Jesus, uh, or because the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, therefore I must be full of the Spirit. No, we know there's something bigger than just knowing doctrine about the work of the Spirit. We need His power to be His witnesses. So what does that look like? Well, a couple of verses to think about, and then we'll close. One, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or wastefulness, but be, literally, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not so much about a one-time thing as it is an ongoing thing. Be being filled. Yeah, there's an initial time when you are, the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but there's a reality, listen, that it's about us continuing to be filled you might say there's one baptism, many fillings. And we should be pursuing that fullness of the Spirit. Now remember, when the Bible talks about fullness of the Spirit, it's not talking about uh, the Spirit as some sort of a force, like it's petrol being poured into you and you light it on fire, I'm full of the Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit's not a force, He's a person. The fullness of the Spirit, we, we get to understand what it means, is like when, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're full of your father, the devil. He means you're completely under the influence of, of Satan right now. So being full of the Spirit means completely surrendered to the influence of God's Spirit in our lives. And there are times, listen, where God comes upon us, the Spirit of God comes upon us, and that influence is unhindered. And God is just doing something. And I will say this, when that happens, you know something's happening. You know something's happening. Now we're going to talk about what that's going to look like, how that should look like as we go through the rest of, of 1 Corinthians. But there's a reality that God wants us to pursue the coming upon of the Spirit for His purposes, His motives, His reasons. And we'll talk about those in future weeks. But it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Some, sometimes people ask us, well, do you lay hands uh, here? Do you believe in laying on of hands? Well, it depends what you mean. Do I believe that I transfer the Holy Spirit to other people by laying on hands? No, I think that's unbiblical. Do we lay hands on people and pray for them? Yes. Because laying on hands is just me saying, as an authority, I agree with this person for what God wants. That's all it means. And so I lay hands on people and we pray that God would fill them with the Holy Spirit. 
But guess what? I pray in my prayer closet for you guys that you pray for, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray for myself. No one will lay hands on me. I'm not laying hands on you. It's an ongoing thing. This other scripture, quickly, Galatians 5.25, Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, in other words, if we've been made born again by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It's a relationship. He's not a force. He's a person. It's a relationship. We walk with Him. Now, can you see why we're having a Q&A session at the end? And we only got through three verses. Here's the reality, guys. Our first and primary desire for you is that you would come truly to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you'd be born again. But for those of you who have been born again of the Spirit, we want to disciple you. We want to disciple each other and what it means to walk in the Spirit. That we might experience the power of the Spirit to do the work of the Spirit of making disciples of all the nations. It's really that simple. See, we need to get past this, I want this particular manifestation, and begin to pursue what God's Spirit is pursuing, the souls of men. God, we, we want what you want. We want to see you conform us in the image of, to, into the image of Christ, and you want to see you save others and make them into the image of Christ. This is what God wants us to pursue. I know that in talking about these things, I'm probably uh, craving more questions than answers in the beginning. But my hope and my prayer for us is that as we go through this series, that by the end of it, we get a better understanding of what God's wanting to do in us. And that we pursue that together. And it becomes less about judging each other and more about being like-minded, endeavoring to keep, not create, but keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace to do the work of spreading the gospel in the world.